welcome to the Rossi Pavilion of the National Arts Centre. Some of you may have noticed that I spent a fair bit of time on Twitter. There's a hashtag on Twitter that I've been noticing more and more often. It's hashtag AdWomenChangePolitics. I am a bit of a skeptic on these things. I'm not sure whether that's always or automatically true. But I suspect strongly that interesting things can happen when someone who believes that and makes it her credo is in a position of influence to try and put it into work. And that's very much the case with our guest tonight. Uh, she's one of the most powerful women in Canadian politics, and she tells the Prime Minister what to do at least half the time. Sometimes it's vice versa, I don't know, we're going to try and figure that out. Uh, please welcome the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. You were in Washington this morning? What the hell? <laughs> what was that about? There's some meetings happening there right now. Okay. Well, I'm glad that they could spare you. Um, and I feel like I should put on the record right off the bat that um, because people around Ottawa have been asking, why on earth did the Prime Minister's office offer up the PM's Chief of Staff? This never happens. They never do interviews. Uh, and. Uh, in fact, I had to spend about two months trying to get you to... I was going to say offer up is an interesting choice of words. Yes. <laughs> Sacrificially. Um, you drew the short straw. No, uh, I thought that, um, uh, frankly, I interview the Prime Minister all the time, and I'd never get to interview you, so I thought, I thought I'd try my luck. Um, but you were reluctant to come and join us here on our little stage and after a while you decided to come. How come? So two things and in a way Washington and, and other events this week are an example of that. It is my, my primary job uh, is serving the Prime Minister and the Cabinet and the government um, and events unfold in ways I can't plan for um, which can make making commitments for me uh, difficult. Um, but I decided to do it, and I do occasionally do public uh, engagements. Um, I've done some really great events with Lean In and uh, in different parts of the country, um, amongst a few others, and I was at the Public Policy Forum a couple of weeks ago. And I do it for two reasons, because every time, I've had to get used to the fact that every time I do speak publicly uh, as Chief of Staff, that there are people on Twitter uh, who respond immediately saying, you know, your predecessor wouldn't have done this, and, you know, they'll throw it one name or another. And um, I say, you know, first of all, I often smile at the thought that I am the same as my predecessors um, in a lot of different ways. And um, one of those ways is that I am the, not the first, but the second woman chief of staff. And I'm a believer in sort of the see her to be her mantra. And I believe that for the purposes of making diversity a fact in this country, it is not a fact within politics, along with many other realms. And one of the ways that we can draw more people in is to connect what it is that we do uh, to more people. So that it's not calling up our like-minded friends when governments are formed uh, to create what the back rooms look like. I'm trying to bring the back rooms a little more into the front rooms because I do genuinely believe that's how we're going to draw more people in. And then secondly and more broadly, and I, this is why Jerry and I both, um, Jerry the Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister and my uh, kind of co-conspirator in all of this since the beginning, um, why we do speak a little bit more too is not only the, the age and of social media changes things dramatically, 
there is no ability to have a back room really now, um, even if you wanted to. And secondly, I, I would like to earn uh, from Canadians to the degree that we can greater respect for the political system. And part of the political system is our jobs. And I think the way that we can best do that is if we actually open the doors a bit and show people what it is that we do so that we can hopefully stop getting some of the nicknames that some of your colleagues and many others have given to us over the years from short pants to many other things um, and uh, instead show the, uh, the professionals that I, I work at trying to be every day uh, along with a really great team of people. I uh, wanted to ask a little bit about the beginnings of your life in politics and I did a little bit of research uh, and uh, only a little, I'm a columnist after all. <laughs> um, your life in politics started really early. It started when you were babysitting for your neighbor maybe even a little earlier. How did you get interested in this field? So it's the pinned tweet at the top of my feed that you saw. Okay, really? <laughs> Yeah, I, there's, uh, I, I there's, forgot to check Twitter, actually. There's, uh, no, there's a photo of um, uh, that uh, a reporter for Chatelaine uh, came across. And literally, it just happened to be out the day uh, that I was talking to her because someone had sent it in to me because uh, they had stumbled across it from a long time ago. Um, Bob Ray, I had the fortune of him living around the corner from me growing up and, uh, and, and including when he won the election to become premier. And so that was really my introduction to politics. I, I had two public servant, uh, neutral, never a sign on the lawn. There are signs on the lawn now. Uh, but uh, I sometimes think that's as attached to they know my job is involved. Um, but, uh, you know, they were... Um, they were strong public servants. We had conservative leadership, actually, in terms of party leadership that were my neighbors on my other side. I sometimes used to joke that's how I ended up a liberal was <laughs> then I kind of, I worked out between the two. But Bob Ray gave me advice very early on, first of all, to uh, look into the PAGE program. Uh, so I was a PAGE when he was premier at the Ontario legislature. Um, and secondly, to get involved in politics no matter what the political party. Uh, I'm not sure at the time he thought I was going to go liberal, uh, but in the end, we were all together. Was there ever another career option for you? When I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Did you have some, something in mind that, that didn't pan out? Um, well, I didn't think I was going to be chief of staff, uh, in part because there's, there wasn't a lot of talk about becoming chief of staff to the prime minister. If you were interested in politics, people kind of said, well, would you run? And generally, that was seen as something that you would do after you've done something else. Uh, so politics wasn't sort of an immediate out of university or out of high school or out of you know, any post-secondary kind of path. It was something I was interested in. Um, I thought about law school, but then my husband was going to law school, so I kind of felt like I'd done it by the time he finished. <laughs> uh, he's out there. And, um, and so you know, I, I was kind of exploring a bunch of different paths. I was studying international relations, and uh, I was a competitive debater, so which meant that I was fascinated by you know, most subjects that I could uh, argue about at the time. Um, but really, I kind of fell into political Stafferdom after university because I called a friend and said, it's my turn to move because um, I was moving actually back from Ottawa to Toronto. I had not been in partisan politics until then and I called a friend who was working at Queen's Park and said, I'd be interested in seeing what it is you do in politics. Um, how do I get involved? And I was lucky to be in a situation where I could call a friend to do that and that he could say, oh, my friend is running a by-election campaign and by-election campaigns are an amazing way to get involved in politics because everybody turns out for a by-election. And so I uh, started volunteering on a by-election and 
one thing led to another. Okay. And from there, Chief of Staff to Gerard Kennedy, who was the the health minister. Well, started out okay. education minister. Okay. Um, uh, but, like everyone uh, else in this town, I ignore Queen's Park. <laughs> I remember those things. Um, I uh, actually, I started out, it was uh, my first day on the job full time as a political staffer was 9-11. Uh, so a very obviously easy day for me to remember and uh, walking into Queen's Park. Um, and at the time, Gerard was the education critic. Uh, we were in opposition at Queen's Park um, and just at, sort of in the beginnings of unfolding and building an education platform for what then became um, a, a leader who ran to be the education premier. So okay. it was a pretty exciting thing to be involved in. And while I wasn't a student politician in the university sense, I actually was in high school. And so it got to bring a lot of passions of mine together when, uh, when I got to start that job. I also say when you work in opposition, it's the best it's the best training as a political staffer because you, there is a small number of you, so you have to become a generalist. And I, you know, you've got to figure out everything from how to get a press release out to how to craft the substance behind an announcement you're making to how to send your politician on tour. Um, so that was how I started. Okay. And then, skip a bit, you worked with Justin Trudeau in opposition again, and you, were, you, ran, you, you helped to run that campaign in 2015. Was Chief of Staff something that was obviously going to be the culmination of that if he won the election, or at some point was it a surprise? At some point did you have to say to yourself, am I ready for this? There were several questions there. Yeah. Um, so uh, my, uh, as my husband here can attest, um, it was definitely not something that was... I was very focused. I'm a believer in being very focused on election day. Um, we were going from third place and uh, there was a lot of work for our party to do, a lot of very hard work that our party had to do and um, so we obviously started doing work around transition and had people working on that but I certainly was not focused on what my job was going to be and, and quite truthfully if you'd asked me is that something I, I would have uh, I would have probably shrugged it off. Uh, at the time I didn't know the term, it's something I've actually learned as I've been delving more and more into uh, sort of women, uh, kind of the place of women in uh, business and in the, in the workforce. Um, I didn't know sort of imposter syndrome. It was actually Kate Purchase, our director of communications, our amazing uh, director of communications, who's currently uh, and wonderfully on maternity leave. It was her who gave a speech uh, at an event and talked about imposter syndrome. And I read her speech in advance and I thought to myself, and. I've actually been wrong when people have been asking me the question, have I ever had it? Because I did, very briefly, but I did, the morning after the election. Because the, the, uh, the Prime Minister, um, because I hadn't really thought of it until that point in a, in a serious way, and uh, then the Prime Minister reached out to me to say, would I consider doing this? But I didn't know that's why he was reaching out to me. My husband did. Uh, so, so that is arguably what imposter syndrome is all about. But it was very brief. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's a reflection and lesson learned that um, we shouldn't be. We too often do kind of think, oh, maybe we're, we're not the person. Who's the person? And yet each time I've taken on these roles, uh, I haven't regretted it for a second. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the... Uh, the rhythm of the work week in the Prime Minister's office? Is there even such a thing, or is it just one damn thing after another? I don't know if I would insert the word damn for everything <laughs> that I deal with, but um, it's, uh, there's a certain rhythm in the sense that there are certain blocks of time that are almost always there, particularly when the House is sitting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's cabinet on Tuesday mornings. There's caucus on Wednesday mornings. There's certain cabinet committees that the prime minister chairs. Uh, there are stock take meetings that he holds. There's four themed stock takes uh, that he holds on a, on a sort of rotating regular basis and they're blocked in the calendar long in advance. So once you kind of put all those pieces into the calendar, the calendar is really a jigsaw uh, and, uh, or a puzzle and you kind of figure out you know, how to fit everything else around those pieces. Um, having said that, there is, it is stranger to have a normal day. Like a normal day for me is actually not what most people I think probably think is normal uh, because we do have to get up and as do you, you know, read the news and, and events change things. Um, or we learn information that isn't in the news and that will change things. Um, and figuring out how to adapt what we're learning day to day into that jigsaw is actually probably one of the more critical elements of my job. Yeah. Alex Himmelfarb, who was the clerk of the Privy Council when uh, Kretchen was Prime Minister, mm -hmm. talked about this, this almost too good to believe majestic flow of the week where Monday was for putting out fires, Tuesday was for addressing the legislative agenda. By the time they got to Friday, it was sort of blue sky stuff. Kretchen would come in and say, have you read this article in The Economist? And they'd say no, and he'd say, you should. And they it would sounds think very about, peaceful. Yeah, and I, I suspect that those days, uh, regardless of the personalities of the people concerned, those days have just gone. Uh, do you ever have a week where you could describe it like that? I don't know that I would, I would theme it in quite the same way, but there are certainly, it's really important, uh, and easier said than done, but it's really important in our jobs to find time for reflection, for thinking, for, for, for taking stock. In many ways, that's the purpose of those stock takes that the Prime Minister chairs, is it's an opportunity to sit around a table with some of the ministers involved in a particular theme, with senior staff uh, from various parts of government on both the public service side and the political side, and to, literally do that, is to, to take stock. The idea in those meetings is not to uh, get into you know, reading out PowerPoints or anything like that. It's actually to say, where are we stuck on this file? Let's talk about how we get past where we're stuck. And um, I think finding those times is, is critical to maintain perspective and to make sure that we aren't only being reactive and that we are at least reactive to sort of the day-to-day -day events we feel in Ottawa uh, sometimes, which is, not necessarily the life that Canadians are, are feeling and experiencing across the country and making sure we're staying connected to Canadians, to young people, uh, to experiences in different parts of the country. That does take taking a step back, sometimes taking a step outside Ottawa too. I know that for a long time at the beginning of this government's term in office, you as a as a team and you personally were preoccupied with the fact that you had a rookie caucus and a substantially a rookie cabinet, people who uh, didn't have previous ministerial experience but in a lot of cases were new, new members of parliament and you set up a series of procedures and routines for beginning to address that. Do you, could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, the retreats are what I'm thinking of course. Yeah, um, I, the retreats though I wouldn't say are because anyone's rookie. Um, I actually would firmly advocate, so I would strongly advocate for retreats like that for the reflective reasons that I was just describing. We actually go out of our way to not treat them as sort of regular business as you've seen um, when we have those retreats, but actually to take them as times, as Minister Monsef knows, uh, to take them as times to really talk through 
big, big things that are happening in the country or in the world um, to give folks a chance to speak for more than, you know, when you have a, a two-hour cabinet meeting. There's, there's only so deep you can go, and um, it gives a chance to really dig in on uh, how people are, are experiencing uh, their, uh, their various files or what they're hearing across the country. We've kept a real priority on continuing to knock on doors and bringing those reflections into the conversations we don't often have time for in, when we're passing each other in the hallways. So the retreats give us that opportunity to reflect that I think is so important. But to your point on, on sort of rookie politicians, because that is what they are. They're rookie politicians, they're not rookies. They are an incredible, incredible, um, diverse group of professionals from all walks of life. Um, and uh, that diversity in every sense of the word, uh, from you know, age and culture to professional backgrounds, the experience that they are bringing to the table and the very direct experience from mayors and city councilors to um, individuals who have, who have been refugees, who have lived in poverty, uh, or who've worked on Bay Street and run big, big businesses, having that diversity of people, I think, is a huge benefit. But it does, it does mean there's a lot of people who haven't dealt with the likes of you before. So, you know. <laughs> I'm given to understand it's often terrifying. Uh, how are you doing? Um, the, uh, and at some point in all this, at some point in your political career, perhaps even before you came to Ottawa, you started to take note of the number of women who were at each meeting. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when that started and, 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 and why did you do that? So it actually started, I think, um, about uh, in and around the first budget. Uh, and it was, uh, to my dismay, uh, I didn't fully appreciate until after the first budget how few women were in the room uh, in, in terms of sort of the, the, one of the, the rooms that I was in uh, until, uh, in, until much later in the process than I wish I had noted. And uh, we, we still, because of all the various inputs and ways that the cabinet and the government work, uh, there were obviously many, many women who were inputting into it. Um, but that there was something, the fact that it, you know, it came late in the game, frankly, and it would have come earlier, I'm convinced, if there had been more diversity in the room earlier on, to be asking the question about GBA plus and how it applies to budgets, for example. So it was, it was something that someone reflected to me, I unfortunately can't remember who, and, and I just, it, it struck me that I hadn't noticed it. When I know, and I started to realize how normal it was for me to be one of uh, with Kate there, it was often one of two, uh, but one and sometimes two in the room. And oftentimes, the rest of the diversity when it comes is actually from our cabinet. Um, that, and uh, to the clerk's uh, amazing credit, the clerk of the Privy Council, uh, the, the deputy minister cadre and the senior ranks of the public service have, uh, have dramatically changed in terms of their numbers in the last number of years as well. Um, so, so we're seeing these things change, but early on, I started to realize myself that I didn't notice anymore. And so for me, it was just a personal reflection to write down. I wasn't announcing it at the beginning or the end of the meeting saying, hey, I just wrote down two and 10. Um, but uh, I also found that even when I wrote down the numbers until I calculated it into percentages, um, I wouldn't fully appreciate the number because you'd write down you know, four and 10 and you'd think, oh, four, well, that's not two. And then you'd calculate it and go, but we're still at a third, or not even. Um, and so I just, I found it was really 
a reflection that I, I made for myself, and it was a way of me or reminding myself about what, is, what should not be normal, not allowing it to become normal for me. But then what happened was I discovered people read over my shoulder. And, and in this case, it was a good thing. Uh, probably good for me to know, because it's not always a good thing. But, um, and I started, colleagues started to do it as well. And, uh, or they would just note it, and then they would, you know, they would comment on it afterwards. And to the point that I've actually had people come to meetings and introduce me to a woman that they've brought to the meeting with them, which was not my intended purpose. And at first, I kind of almost wanted to react saying that. And then I thought, you know what, that's kind of awesome. Because if they're coming in now and, and are seated at the table and have a voice, and they're more likely to get invited back now, too, um, that is a good thing. And so we've, I've seen kind of all these unintended consequences from it, but to be honest, I started doing it just as a quiet thing at the top of the page because I was annoyed at myself because I wasn't noticing the numbers properly. Okay. As time has gone on, though, you have um, uh, the role of women in politics and in governance and in society has become a real preoccupation uh, of this government. I get the strong impression that you've been a real instigator of that. How have you applied that lesson across government? So the whole... The whole team, and I say this very sincerely, is, uh, is very seized with this. And, and by the whole team, you, you will often hear members of our caucus uh, talking on, on um, ad women change politics and uh, uh, telling their own stories, uh, members of our cabinet. Uh, the prime minister is you know, the, the, chief, the chief champion on this. Uh, and he will push me. Uh, he will encourage me to do things like this, uh, which is probably different uh, than would have been experienced by, uh, by predecessors. Um, and he encourages, um, he, he will say things when he walks into rooms. Um, he will walk into rooms and say, we have a little bit of work to do here in terms of gender parity in this room. And it's, it's never a scolding thing, it's a taking note. Um, because as I was saying, even about myself, it's too often just not noted and sometimes noting it is so important. Um, but I'll say, going to those stock takes I was mentioning that the Prime Minister chairs, those are some of my favorite meetings. Um, so, because one of them in particular is a stock take on diversity and inclusion. And it's been a bit of a, um, un unlike the, uh, the one on climate change or on the middle class, diversity and inclusion has been one where we've been having to find our way. Uh, there wasn't an obvious sort of playbook, uh, not that there has been on any of the other particular files, but there's a more traditional set of things that you would be tackling and talking about. Whereas on this, there really, there really wasn't. And so part of it was getting out there and talking to people and saying, so what could this look like? You know, Minister Monsef is now working on a men and boys strategy. What does that look like? And, and as we've been asking that question, a surprising number of people, at least surprising to me, have been putting up their hands saying, I've heard about it in this country. I actually, people on Twitter, um, there's a lot of negativity around you know, what women experience on Twitter in particular, what everyone experiences on Twitter. The flip side is I have met some incredible advocates over Twitter that I feel like I know when I show up in different cities and, and I meet them and I, I, I'm convinced I know them and then I realize I've only ever talked to them over, talked to them over Twitter. Um, and actually the network of women over Twitter uh, and, and men, because um, partners and allies in, in many ways I think are more important than we women speaking up because your voice actually opens doors uh, for both men and women to make it comfortable. And, um, 
I think, uh, so when we had this, those stock takes, we had two that I talk about a fair bit, actually. One where we had uh, all the heads of the sort of the security and defense side of government come in and the numbers were given ahead of time. We had another one where it was all the economic elements of government. And they provided their numbers in advance because we didn't want to be spending the whole time talking about numbers. We wanted to move to solutions. It's not just about numbers. It's about wh where are we stuck? What can we do? How can we support? Um, and, uh, and, so, and seeing that room of people and, and the number of people who said, we've just not been in a room like this to have a conversation like this with people at this level taking an interest. Uh, and a year later after one of those stock takes, uh, someone just started, you know, I ran into them and they said, you know, a year ago there was that stock take and here's the list of things that had happened since. And I, I hadn't even fully appreciated sort of the ripple effect of things. But, you know, when the Prime Minister calls a meeting, a lot can happen from that. Uh, so needless to say, I think there are things going on across government. Um, but I do feel, you're right, uh, and, and very much supported by Jerry and by the Prime Minister, a responsibility as the second woman chief of staff to be finding ways to get more women in here. Surely you get resistance, pushback from various sectors of government or outside government. Uh, how does that manifest itself? Um, well, some of it is, uh, it, the pushback is the pushback I think that, you know, anybody gets. I don't, I don't think it's that unique uh, in my experience. There's, there's been ups and downs for the word feminist uh, over the last number of decades. I'm thrilled uh, that in the last few years, I would say actually since the Prime Minister really started calling himself a feminist, I just saw such a wave of comfort, uh, particularly around young women um, and even men saying that they're feminists. Having said that, you know, we've seen a dip in that as well in recent months. And I can, you know, and, and we saw Jacinda, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern in, um, in the UK explaining to young people along with our Prime Minister why we have to keep explaining it to people. Um, and, and just being persistent and determined on this, I think is the response to the pushback. But the pushback tends to be to try to quiet our voices. And so that's where I think it's so important that we not just go back into the back rooms uh, because we won't draw more women out. It's the reason I went on the record, which as you know, I don't do that often, but on the whole Me Too uh, movement when it started to hit Ottawa, because I was convinced that by, by some colleagues and, and by some of your colleagues that it needed to be said that this is a wonderful place. It is a privilege to work here and that we need, therefore, women working here uh, and um, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, but that it's a wonderful place to work. And, and I, I didn't want all the negativity surrounding what was coming out um, to push anyone away and to particularly push anyone who might not yet see themselves reflected in Ottawa properly to push them away. Uh, and I, I think that women have to be part of, of the solution uh, to the Me Too movement in Ottawa. Okay. Want to change the subject a little bit to the way you get to work in Ottawa, which is by winning elections. Um, on YouTube the other day, I noticed an old video uh, from December of 2013 in which Katie Telford, co-chair of the Liberal election campaign, talks about paths to victory. and. Uh, and I was struck by how the next election is closer uh, to today than the 2015 election was when you made that video. Uh, huh. how, I haven't done that math yet. Yeah. So December of uh, 2013, the equivalent of last December, you're yeah. saying yeah. The, the campaign is already on. So is the next campaign already on? 
well, there are parts of it that we were starting up then uh, that we haven't stopped. Uh, so at that time, I think in that video, I was encouraging people to knock on doors, uh, to recruit volunteers, uh, to fundraise, to do all the things that a party and a movement needs to have uh, to grow. Well, that hasn't stopped. I mean, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, our MPs, our ministers themselves, some of our ministers are some of our strongest door knockers. It's amazing. And, and it's amazing because you, those stories come back to Ottawa and keep it real. Uh, when you hear, whether it's around a cabinet table or in a caucus meeting or just in conversations around the Hill, saying, well, this issue really was coming up at the doors on the weekend or this issue wasn't really coming up at doors on the weekend, um, it really does give some perspective. So it's a different place that we're in today than then, though I would continue today, as I do, to encourage everyone who's getting involved in politics to be knocking on doors. Okay. In that video, you say you get up every morning. You said you were getting up every morning and looking at the dashboard, which I guess is the aggregate total of all of the metrics that a campaign yeah. gathers. Uh, is there a dashboard today? Are you looking at it? Uh... There are much nicer looking dashboards than I had then now. And, uh, and there are some really talented people that look at them at the party. Um, that is not where I'm focused now. Um, but uh, obviously there were lots of people at the convention on the weekend who are very focused on, uh, on looking at all those numbers on a very regular basis. Um, I, I permit myself to be a little skeptical about the benefits of door knocking. It's anecdotal, it's it, uh, in terms of the information that you get. Uh, surely you can get much more finely grained information and much more statistically reliable information from polling. And this government is not shy about polling. Uh, do you still get stuff from the door that, that you wouldn't get from uh, that sort of public opinion research? Uh, so yes, is the short answer in my view. I, I don't like relying on any one source of information. Um, and uh, so Jerry and I actually get reports from all kinds of different places. Uh, one, of, one of the things that we like to do when we start to see an issue starting to move, uh, or if we're wondering if it's starting to move, is actually to check correspondence. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's email and then there's snail mail, which still comes in and there are huge volumes of correspondence that come into the Prime Minister's office. Um, and, uh, and, and looking at that uh, and then actually pulling samples sometimes and reading that, it's kind of like knocking on doors of a, in a different way. Um, no, it's not the same as, as polling research where you can you know, parse by different di demographics and obviously it, it gives you a, a quantitative analysis that's different and we look at that and you know, we did lots of talking before the campaign about you know, different ways of looking at analytics and, and we continue to, uh, to constantly be learning on that front. But correspondence and knocking on doors, there's a deeper conversation that you're having in those moments. Hopefully not too long. Politicians that spend too long at the door are actually not doing what they're supposed to do. But it is certainly longer um, and, and more intimate a moment. You know, someone who brings up an issue to you, to your face at a door, um, different than what they're saying over the phone or on a computer, um, and, and, and how they reflect that to you. It, it ha I think it's a real thing. You have to make sure not to overblow it, to know when it you know, might be being motivated by uh, something that they're not revealing, uh, perhaps in that brief conversation. But you know, if you hit 10 doors and eight out of 10 are raising a certain issue, that says something. Do they ever just give you hell? Like, do, they, do you ever hear at the door that you really screwed up some file? 
And if so, which ones? <laughs> so, despite everything I've been saying about the importance of knocking on doors, that's a better question for the politicians who are knocking on doors more than I am. Um, but uh, they definitely, you know, they definitely you get uh, you get people that that give you their honest opinions at doors, uh, both good and bad. And that's the point of it, though. If they didn't, then you're not getting the benefits I was just describing. You can't bring something back to learn from it and to share a story um, when you come back. And, uh, but, but we get great things at the door, too. And one of the reflections that you know, we don't hear a lot about here, and we get a lot at the doors, is how families are benefiting uh, from the Canadian Child Benefit. It's something that comes up all the time at the doors, and yet you know, we're still working at how to actually get it out there is something that people understand the true benefit of across the country. Um, so, you know, those are things where it's like, how do we connect this piece, this story we're hearing to a broader audience? In Halifax this past weekend at the Liberal Convention, David Axelrod, the, the Obama campaign official, came up and uh, spoke with your colleague Jerry Butts, and he yeah. said that there's a difference between an insurgent campaign and an incumbent campaign, that you can... Um, you can, when people haven't really tested uh, you as a government because they haven't experienced you as a government, you can run on hope. And uh, the second time around, people know uh, what a Trudeau government is like or what an Obama government was like. And, and you have to run more on the notion of a choice between uh, the government in place and the government that would replace it. Is that something that you're coming to grips with as a government and as a party, the idea that next time you're going to have to run on your record and run against an alternative? So David Axelrod is a very smart man. Um, and I was very sorry to miss his talk on, uh, on Friday night and, and well, his and Jerry's conversation on Friday night. Um, and uh, the, the quibble I might have with at least the way that, that you've described it. Uh, I, I, would, I would really, I'm trying to think of the word so I'm not using the same word twice. Uh, I would really hope that we don't have to drop the hope part. Um, I, don't, I don't see why we would be, I actually think that is the record of our government is, is constantly uh, and continuously learning and uh, staying connected to a positive vision for government. And that requires us to remain hopeful. Um, about how citizens and government connect, about what government can do for citizens. Uh, I think that, I would hope we don't actually drop a lot from the last campaign, but recognizing that we have a record of a government that we should be proud of and should be promoting and contrasting to our, our uh, opponents in the next election. Okay. In 2019, voters aren't going to be guessing about a Trudeau government. They will know about a Trudeau government. And some of them will have had a chance to be disappointed. What would you say to voters who really thought they were going to get electoral reform? Um, I, would tell, I would talk to them about all the other things that we have accomplished. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, there is a lot that often those are young voters, often those are progressive voters. Um, to be honest, I have talked to more people in the last year who have shifted their view as to the importance of that uh, particular commitment. And, and, and after having criticized us greatly for, uh, for, for what we did in the first year and a half or two on, on that. Um, but I would really focus on the other things that we have done, because they are very, very important things that I wouldn't want to see reversed in this country.
Yeah. Uh, a lot of voters thought that Justin Trudeau would protect British Columbia from oil pipelines. Now, I'm going to skip to part of your answer and go back to his electoral commitments, which were uh, not as categorical. But um, you still have in British Columbia a lot more liberal seats that you could potentially lose over the pipeline dispute than you have in Alberta that you could gain by backing the Notley government. Uh, how how preoccupying is the pipeline dispute right now? And, 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 and when you say you're going to get that, this is another multi-part question. Um, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I, when you say you're going to get that pipeline built, are you just saying it? <laughs> well, that's easy. No. <laughs> um, to your earlier series, uh, I would... Uh, I know it's tempting to want to do the seat math, but um, to your very first point of hearkening back to the last election and the commitments made, one of the commitments we made was how we walk that line and find that balance uh, in terms of the economy and the environment. And I think our ministers, Minister McKenna uh, as our Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Minister Carr for Natural Resources, have been doing a phenomenal job of, you know, epitomizing Team Trudeau and tackling what is a very difficult issue and working together and along with the rest of cabinet and our British Columbia and our Alberta ministers. Um, it's been a true team effort and that's why I can say no to your last question. Okay. We don't just say things. Okay. Um, when are you going to get the pipeline built? No. I'm going to leave that to the ministers to... Uh... Um, it's just you're, 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 you're heading into a year where it seems to me that the climate piece and the, and the resource piece are going to become even more preoccupying than they had, they had been before. The, Minister McKenna is trying to um, uh, implement a carbon price. Andrew Shear says I have to call it a carbon tax uh, by the end of the year. You don't have to do what Andrew Shear says, you know. <laughs> That's not what he says. Um, the, uh, the government of Saskatchewan today uh, announced a, a, a reference to um, uh, Saskatchewan court about the constitutionality of uh, the federal carbon price scheme. Um, is there any interest in kicking that reference up to the Supreme Court to get more certainty quicker? I mean, time's kind of, uh, clock's ticking on this. I know it's going to really, I know, you, I know you needed to ask that, and I know it's going to surprise you to hear me say I am definitely going to leave that to uh, the appropriate ministers to get into answering. Okay. Speaking of appropriate ministers, I hear that there's not a decision that gets made in this town without going through your office or the nest of offices around you. Is that, how true is that? Uh, I definitely wouldn't put it that way. Uh, having said that, I do think we play a uh, two things. One, uh, obviously the Prime Minister is involved with decisions that are going through Cabinet. Uh, two, that the Prime Minister's office very much plays a supporting and coordinating role. Uh, and so to that extent, uh, everything can't happen all at once as much as we might like it to and as much as everyone might like it to. It just can't. Uh, so prioritizing and trying to, you know, hear the feedback from, from cabinet as to what needs to happen when, and then trying to map it out, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. And it sometimes means waiting on something until we get something else done. Have you been taken aback by the difference in scale between governing a country and governing a province? 
No, not really. <laughs> um, I mean, Ontario is, is first of all, it's, it's, it's a big province with a, uh, with a, a big budget that we were managing there. And, uh, but we also spent a number of years planning for the potential to be here. We've known people, Jerry and I, and, and the Prime Minister, obviously, um, who've been in government before. We're surrounded by, by all kinds of expertise on the public service side. You just, I mean, part of being a political staffer, I find it's, it's staying in a zone. Jerry and I say it's, you know, no drama zone. And uh, you tackle, you know, each day and each week uh, for what it is. Um, it, you just, that, yeah, you just don't get overwhelmed. You can't. Okay. Um, on my list of potentially disappointed uh, voters, um, I do want to talk about voters who thought in 2015 that they had had enough of a conservative government telling them how to think and are starting to worry that they've got a liberal government that's telling them how to think. One of the files that comes up from people who tell me that they have that perception of this government is the question of attestations for the summer jobs program. There's a coalition of faith groups that said that uh, more than a thousand applications for the summer jobs program were turned down because they didn't check that box about, uh, about believing in reproductive rights even though some of those groups added their own uh, written addendum saying, we absolutely believe in the Charter of Rights, we're going to swear by the Charter of Rights, we've got no problem with the Charter of Rights, uh, but they didn't get their funding for that program anyway. Um, are you concerned about the message that that, that that sends to people who take their faith seriously? So I'm going to tackle two different parts to your multi-part question okay. again. Um, one is, I just want to start by saying one of the things I am incredibly, incredibly proud of the Liberal Party um, dating back to when the leader uh, became leader and, uh, and, and in our run-up and then as a Liberal government of the very strong stance we have taken to be a pro-choice government and a pro-choice party before that. Um, it, is, uh, it is something that, as you know, has not always been clear, and it's something that the leadership of, of this party has made very clear. Uh, and I think that is hugely important to both men and women across this country. And so I start there. Um, two, uh, so then on, on the more specific element of, or on the disappointed voters, as you called them, those are the voters that we need to keep knocking on the doors of. Uh, and that's also why knocking on doors is so important because one of the things I actually didn't mention earlier, but when you're knocking on doors, it's almost an opportunity to test, to test messages really, you know, for politicians to get a chance to talk to people and to say, you know, this is what we're trying to do and for them to say, but I'm hearing it this way. It's a focus group of a sort, except it's not a focus group of people that you've, you know, brought into a boardroom and set up. It's, it's them in their homes um, being willing to talk to you about something. Uh, I think there are lessons to be learned and we are constantly having to, you know, take you know, as I said earlier, take stock. I've learned from D&D, they call it hot wash. You know, we need to constantly be considering um, how to do things better. And there may be lessons to be learned from this last year, as, as, uh, as we've all said. But, um, but overall, I think uh, the fact that we took that firm, principled position in the first place is a really important thing that, Canadian, that Canadians asked us to do. Here in Ontario, we're watching the provincial government for which he used to work, uh, heading into an election cycle in which the Liberal Party is in facing substantial challenges. Uh, the outcome isn't preordained, but they're, they've really got their, their backs to the wall. And I'm wondering whether 
um, first of all, that's preoccupying because you've got uh, a pretty steady provincial ally, Premier Wynne spoke at the convention on the weekend, who is endangered. And secondly, are there political lessons to be learned from the current discomfiture of the Ontario Liberal Party? Um, so I think, uh, I, I think there are always lessons to be learned from every campaign and from every government. We're always looking at, and not just of our own political stripe from, from every party and every campaign. We're always looking you know, around the world or at governments as we meet them in different parts of the world, hearing their stories. There are always things to learn. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting election. <laughs> okay, well, are you tired of the double-barreled questions yet? Are they only double-barreled? <laughs> How about this one? How did the trip to India go? <laughs> so, I'm guessing what you're asking me about is how there was the, every country we go to, uh, almost I think, uh, the Prime Minister meets with women CEOs. Um, and uh, we had one of those in India and it was literally one of the best I've been to in the world. Uh, the ideas on Canada, India, uh, connections that could be made, uh, tech opportunities that were being raised, uh, STEM programs for women and girls that could be put into action. Um, but I'm guessing that's not what you were asking about. Well, I'm thinking you're going to have to knock on a lot of doors to get that message out. So really what you were asking about was the amazing investment and the jobs that were announced there, but that's not it either, right? This is why I framed my questions. Um, no, it was about all the costumes and about the long period of time before you had any sense of whether you're going to meet the uh, leader of the country and about the, well, we can even leave the Jasper Atwal thing aside because, first of all, you're hearing about it every day in the House of Commons, and secondly, that was just some weird stuff. Um, could there have been better advance for that meeting, uh, for, that, for that trip? And uh, does, does, does the India file need a do-over? Does the PM have to go back at some point and try again? So I don't know that we get do-overs, um, but we do get opportunities to try to either get our messages out again uh, or um, try to do things differently. And you know, you know, and we've talked about this for years as a government and as a party that we like to try to do things differently. The, the prime minister is uh, in public and talking to reporters more than, uh, certainly more than his most recent predecessor did. And that means, you know, there's going to, be days where we go to bed at night thinking, you know, maybe tomorrow will be better. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we learn lessons from that and work to improve for that. Um, in terms of, it, it, one thing I would say is, is you threw out the word costumes and uh, it's, it's really important. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, members of our caucus who've spoken to this as well. Um, who, take, who take great offense to that, that it is, it is traditional dress uh, and attire and um, it, it did not, the pictures unfortunately, and this is a staff person, uh, who this is part of our jobs to sort this out, um, the pictures did not reflect and, and the stories that, that came out of the trip did not reflect the experience. But it is our job to figure out how to correct for that, uh, how, to, how to learn from how that happened and to figure out how to do it uh, in a way that we can connect those stories that we really wanted to tell back to Canadians uh, the next time. Um, I'm going to pause this thing where I've just been giving you hard file after hard file after hard file. And I'm going to talk uh, 
in, in maybe a less pointed way about the hardest file of all, which is our neighbors to the south. Um, you, you have some, you have some, some recent uh, uh, travel experience to Washington. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you to reveal state secrets on that. But um, how much of a preoccupation is the bilateral relationship, and especially with the Trump administration? Is there any room left in the room for 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 you to, for you and this government to address other files? Well, I think we have been. So yes, uh, in terms of the. The, the, the bilateral relationship, uh, I think it's, it's not even a question of whether it's, it's important to the government. I think it's important to Canadians. Uh, there is no doubt that Canadians view the U.S.-Canada relationship, particularly the economic relationship and, and the, the trading aspects of the relationship, uh, longest border, you know, this is, an, this is the most important relationship uh, that we have. They are our southern neighbor. Um, so I think there's an expectation that we put real time and effort into this. And it's been a, it's been a huge team effort, uh, as has been reported on, where we've had ministers and, and caucus members and opposition members and uh, stakeholder groups who've been fanning out across the United States, building relationships in the, in the new uh, administration there and beyond the administration there. Um, and it's... Uh, we're having a lot of meetings this week. Are you going back to Washington? Probably. <laughs> my, my, my plans have been uh, a bit tentative at the moment, but uh, yeah, probably in the morning. Thank you for coming up to talk to us tonight. Um, this network, this really extraordinary network of politicians across Canada who understand that it's part of their job to go and speak into the United States, and of sort of newly self-aware friends of Canada in the United States, mayors in Texas who understand that, that there's a can Canadian connection that maybe didn't understand that before. Is that a crisis measure that had to be implemented because you didn't know what you were dealing with in, in, in the Oval Office? Or is it something that could be usefully repl replicated in future governments with future administrations? Uh, I, I genuinely believe the latter, and I also think that it's reflective of the style of the Prime Minister. Of uh, He's always been a believer. We've talked about it, you know, even just in terms of how we as a party approached the last election. We've always been believers in having multiple pathways uh, and not relying on, on just the one. And uh, I think this is, this is another example of that, but I could point to many files where that's the case, where we were, we're believers in building relationships. Uh, you, you don't know when, when which relationship uh, might, be, uh, might be most valuable uh, in a conversation or, or given events can change so quickly in the world. Um, who might be somebody that, that calls you because they all of a sudden know that you're there. Uh, so we've been building relationships in prime minister's offices and president's offices uh, with our prime minister's office and, and with ministers in our cabinet around the world. Uh, but definitely in the United States, there's been a more concerted effort in the last period of time, uh, particularly given, uh, obviously, the, the discussions around NAFTA. Um, we're drawing pretty close to the end of our conversation. It occurs to me that I haven't asked you too much about your boss. Uh, what is the prime minister like to work with? What are the, uh, um, uh, his, his hobby horses, uh, the preoccupations that you know you have to worry about or, or keep an eye on? Um, and uh, any other gossip you want to spill? <laughs> uh, 
so I've, I've worked with them for quite a while now, and um, you know, in a, in a couple of different capacities, and uh, well, I guess for both him and I, uh, and uh, and Jerry, it's really been you know the three of us and, and a few others who've been there from the very beginning, and um, he's. Uh, He's very, you know, as, as many saw through the, 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 the boxing, however many years ago that was now, uh, he's, a, he's a very disciplined person. Um, and so, uh, you know, whether it's he doesn't drink coffee and, he, uh, and he's got a healthy lifestyle in, in ways that, you know, many of us uh, look up to and envy. Um, and, uh, but, but fitting that into the to the sort of the jigsaw puzzle I was describing earlier. Scheduling, you know, I often say that the scheduler is uh, one of the most talented people in our office um, and, uh, and, the, and the, the team of schedulers because the different things that they have to try and put together um, and it's, it's rare that they get fully stuck and come in, but you know, we do sit down and we have a, a details meeting, as we call it. We actually call it details, details, because there's that many details, uh, and uh, where we go through every moment, um, because he's a dad. He's a real person. He, you know, he, he's a husband. Um, and uh, so, you know, you need to find those times in the schedule and in creative ways uh, at times. And sometimes they creatively work for your colleagues and sometimes you don't always love them. Uh, and so, you know, we have to work with that, you know, when there's, when there's a, uh, an anniversary or a birthday when he's got to be on the road, you know, how do you handle that? Um, at the same time as a boss, he's, as I said earlier, he's a champion. Uh, he, he encourages us all to also um, have as, as balanced lifestyles as, as, uh, as we can and should have. He's the, he's the one who came into Jerry and my office many months after we got into government and said, I expect paintings or pictures up on your walls uh, when I come back from you know, wherever it was he was going to because I feel like you're going to leave me. Um, you know, he takes note of everything from, so I'm trying to give you a little gossip. Uh, <laughs> he takes note of those, of those things, but, um, but also, uh, and he's, he, um, he pushes us. He pushes us to push harder on things, to give more options, um, and to, uh, to really think problems through uh, in a way that I think, uh, I think you'd enjoy watching. Yeah, hypothetically. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm actually glad he, he, he did order you to decorate your offices because I've been in those offices over the years visiting some of your predecessors, conservative and, uh, and liberal. And many months after the election, your offices were stark. It looked like you'd just been evicted. So I'm glad he finally put the hammer down and said you've got to put up some decorations. Because uh, um, you've got a little bit more than a, you've got a year until the next campaign starts. You've got a, about a year and a half until, until Canadians vote. What are the big uh, items on the agenda that you think you really have to focus on uh, now in the home stretch of this mandate? I actually think it's not different than the stretch up until now, um, but with even probably greater emphasis, if, if that can even be the case. Uh, and, and that focus is on, uh, it's, it's going to surprise you to hear this, I'm sure, on the middle class uh, and on those working hard to join it. Uh, but in all seriousness, it's going to be on uh, making sure that those kids were lifting out of poverty, um, that everything's happening in the ways that we believe that they should be, uh, that people are experiencing it in the ways that, you know, the reports and the numbers and everything are telling us, um, that where there are gaps that we are filling them, um, 
and uh, and it's and it's really going to be ensuring that you know that that economic agenda, that middle class agenda uh, that we ran on, despite all the competing events going on around the world and that are making headlines, that we are delivering on that for Canadians. Because that is what, you know, despite all of the other news, that is what Canadians continue to be understandably and rightly focused on, um, is how to, how to look after their families and, uh, and how to have... Um, how to have... Uh, how, to, how to be how to have greater things for their kids than they had. You know, it's, it's the ongoing uh, thing, but we have to connect to Canadians on that on a constant and consistent basis in the next period. So many governments have had their agendas just blown wide open by the unforeseen event. Uh, it looked uh, in November of 2016 like that was going to happen with this government. Uh, how... Um, uh, how much have you been struck by the, the, un, the, un, the unpredictability of life, the fact that you might be going to Washington tomorrow or whatever it is? So the Prime Minister came up with this line, and I'm, I'm going to use it because I, I really... I, I, the unpredictability is actually what has become predictable. And it's actually true for politics generally. It goes back to the earlier part of our conversation when we were talking about what a day looks like. And while there are certain consistent elements to our days, it's actually being used to expecting something to come up in a day um, or in a week that you wouldn't expect and knowing how to roll with that. You know, that's what we often say amongst the team is, you know, it's not that the thing happened. It's now what are we doing and, and making sure that it's not knocking us off course and staying focused on the bigger picture and staying focused on middle class Canadians and the agenda that we got elected on uh, to represent Canadians with. Um. On that note, I'm going to let you get back to the bigger picture. Thank you very much for taking the time to come up and, uh, and uh, talk to me tonight. And I want to thank everyone else for coming out and uh, uh, participating in this uh, serious conversation about serious stuff. There's a reception next door. I hope you'll uh, come and hang out. Thanks very much. Good night.